You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. carried away with palm branches and with shouts of hosannas. The end of our gospel reading this morning makes it clear where this week we are entering into is heading. It reads, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The whole city was in turmoil. They were turned upside down. They were torn apart. It's a clue that this will not end well. And we would do well to tread lightly in this story, for there is danger in it. So let's keep our eyes open. First, note that this is the only time in the Gospels we find Jesus choosing not to walk. Nowhere else is there any indication that Jesus rode a donkey, a colt, or even a horse. Only here, only at this moment. And that seems important, doesn't it? Jesus sends two disciples into Bethphage, instructing them to find a donkey with a colt and to bring them back. And one can imagine the conversation that the two of them may have had along the way, wondering what in the world is Jesus up to? Or what might they do if someone tried to stop them from taking the donkey and the colt, seriously doubting that the explanation, the Lord needs them, would help. Surprisingly, however, it works, just as Jesus said, and the two lead a donkey and a colt back to Jesus and the others. Now, this story of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem occurs in all four Gospels, but Matthew's Gospel is the only one that lists two animals, a donkey and a colt. The other synoptic gospels all describe the animal as a colt, a polos, which can be a donkey or a horse. But Matthew mentions both a donkey and a colt, giving us an intentional aside to to us, his readers. And he quotes the prophet Zechariah from the ninth chapter when he says, Tell the daughter of Zion, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now Matthew quotes Zechariah the prophet as he does all the way through his gospel because he wants us to know that he is placing Jesus and this scene into the larger narrative of God's interactions with the people of Israel. This is a ground-shaking event. Matthew says, heads up, pay attention. 
And here in this listing, both the donkey and her colt, he may be revealing that he misunderstands Jewish poetry. There's a history of parallelism, patterns of parallelism in Hebrew poetry in which one line states an idea one way and it's followed up with a second line that restates the same idea slightly differently, but just with different wording. But to make the story fit with his reading of Zechariah, Matthew tells us that Jesus had a donkey and a colt and he sat on both of them. Now don't ask me how. Once we rush past that little detail, especially once all the other Gospels only specify one animal, I don't know. I admit that when I was a young adult and I first realized that's what Matthew's Gospel said, the first thing I thought of was daredevil circus tricks. Now that would have gathered a crowd, right? One scholar likens it to the difference between Jesus riding a motorcycle and Jesus riding a motorcycle with a sidecar. That helped me. Because nowadays, I'm more likely to give Matthew a little slack, because Hebrew poetry is hard. And perhaps there's some wisdom in the idea that carrying on the ministry of Jesus, the burden of the way of Jesus, is not a solitary exercise. That both the mama donkey and her young colt share that responsibility together, along with the disciples who throw their coats on the backs of the animals. And now with Jerusalem ahead of him and his donkey and a colt, his ride there, we see Jesus begins a very careful orchestration of events, moving everything along. I like to think of this as Jesus' version of street theater. And in response, the crowds begin to swell up along the road with the enthusiasm of a university town welcoming back a national championship basketball team, waving rally towels and shouting with joy as March Madness comes to a triumphant end. But there's something strategically different on this road to this city. Jesus rides a donkey, not a steed. A donkey with her young colt riding alongside. This is not the ride of a conquering general or the stallion of an aspiring king towering high above the adoring crowds, inspiring awe and majesty. No. No, Jesus rides a humble beast of burden one familiar with hard work and long hours, a beast low to the ground, easily accessible to those who throw their cloaks down before him. So put aside any militaristic images because this is no such parade. Soon the peoples are, are cutting down branches from nearby trees and they lay them out on the road as an impromptu carpet for Jesus to ride upon. And the excitement grows. The crowd spills out in front of him and more follow along behind. And they're all crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
Now, the word Hosanna seems to be the transliteration of a Hebrew word, meaning something along the lines of save now. Save us now. Part a cry for help, part a guttural sound, calling out for help. Where are we going to find hope? Save us. Somehow the crowd sensed the possibilities of liberation which Jesus brings. Now perhaps if Matthew had gone ahead and quoted the next verse in Zechariah chapter 9, we would see more clearly the contrast that he is drawing. Zechariah wrote, See your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. You see there, it's that old familiar story of an underdog prevailing against the mighty foal. Zechariah envisions that it will be the one who rides the donkey, the humble one, who will take down the powerful war horse. So can you see now why this might be a dangerous scenario that Jesus is orchestrating on his way in to Jerusalem, the city of David? Those in the city who have now aligned themselves with the Roman occupiers will not take too kindly to such a spectacle. An intentional mocking of the powerful Romans and their armies. And by the time this makeshift parade makes it to Jerusalem, the news is spread, the city is in turmoil, wondering who is this? The crowds call him the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth in Galilee. A haunting lack of perception on their part. That even though they are swept up in all of this, they still don't completely see who Jesus is. Who comes to such a parade? What questions are stirring in their hearts? What hopes do they silently hold to that they are afraid to say out loud? What makes one stop? from whatever you're doing in your daily life, and throw branches down on the road and join in the chants of the crowd. Save us. Save us. Save us. Hosanna. It's a cry that many of us feel in our bones today as we feel helpless to affect positive change in our society. On May 21st, 1998, I was living in Eugene, Oregon, and I was seven months pregnant when we heard the news that a local 15-year-old boy had murdered his parents the night before. Then he'd driven to his high school carrying two hunting knives, two guns and a rifle, and over a thousand rounds of ammunition. And on his way to the cafeteria, he shot two students, one of whom died, and then walked through the cafeteria, emptying the rest of his rounds, 48 of them in the cafeteria, 
striking 37 more students and killing one more. It was only when he attempted to reload that he was brought down by students. This was a year before the shooting at Columbine. It was 1998, 25 years ago, and as an expectant parent, I was shaken to my core, wondering what kind of world were we creating for my child. And as horrific as that time was, none of us living there in Eugene and Springfield, Oregon, could possibly, possibly have imagined that the unthinkable would become the routine that our children would be forced to practice active shooter drills and hide in closets and text their parents that they love them. Or that by 2020, guns would be the leading cause of death of children and teenagers in our country. And now, last week, that all-too-familiar story of yet another school shooting dominated the news, and this time the city was Nashville. This time it was three nine-year-olds and three adult staff members, all shot by a weapon of war. A Vanderbilt pediatric trauma surgeon told NPR, the wounds that are present on these children's bodies are essentially unsurvivable for children. On Thursday, you may have seen as hundreds of Nashville students walked out of their class and joined a protest at the Tennessee Capitol to make their voices heard about the tragedy and to call for changes to gun safety laws in their state as they chanted, save our children. Save us. Hosanna. Perhaps crying out, save us, is where we are right now because the barriers to change seem too insurmountable, the dividing lines entrenched. Save us from a culture that is captivated by the myth of redemptive violence, enamored with the rhetoric of radical individualism and immune to the tragedies that are unfolding around us. Save us for we know not what we do. We would do well to remember that Jesus told his disciples to put away their swords and healed the one who came to arrest him. Save us. Such protests, the massive swells of humanity coming together for a common cause, passionate for a better, safer world, wanting to bring about change. Even when the situation seems intractable. Remember the protests and the marches in Berlin in 1989 as East Berliners pushed for opening the wall and West Berliners joined in as well. And within weeks, pieces of the wall were coming down and German reunification became a reality a year later. Surges of hope 
one writer put it. It's hard to say just when and how those moments occur, but they happen not in the midst of joyful peace. No, they break out in times of hardship when despair seems the more rational response, when the future seems dark and foreboding. Hope is not for the faint of heart. There's within it the element of refusal to follow the prevailing narrative. When hope suggests there is another way for us. Jesus carefully crafts his entry into Jerusalem as a counterpoint to the common narrative of domination by force. Here we see Emmanuel, God with us, comes not with the proud steps of a war horse, but in the small, steady pace of a humble donkey. Soon Jesus turns to disrupt the temple. He drives out the money changers and the temple merchants, and then the blind and the lame surround him, save us seeking to be healed, and Jesus makes them whole. And then Matthew cues the singing children who fill the temple, shouting Hosanna to the son of David. But the city is still in turmoil, and the city faces a choice, a choice which Jesus lays out for them and for us. To embrace the way of Jesus, the way of humility and compassion, the way of hope and shalom, or to hold on to this illusion we have of power and control. Bruce Epperly invites us to imagine a different outcome as we read this story. He asks, what would have happened if love won the day? Can we imagine it? Can we imagine a world if the city would have responded with love and not with fear? It's that radical vision of God's hope which we are called to on this Palm Sunday. To see the world wrapped not in the darkness of fear and hatred, but to imagine the world, our own community, as if love wins. As if reconciliation was at work here. As if the kingdom of God was breaking in all around us. As if neighbors were loving each other. As if the stranger, the refugee, is being welcomed. As if the hungry are being fed. As if the poor are being lifted up and the powerful being brought down. As if all creation is being restored. And yes as if swords are being made into plowshares. And we are praying for our enemies until enemies are now friends. Save us. Hosanna. Do we have the capacity to imagine with hope do we have a vision of faith in the power of God's transformative, gracious love? 
That's the choice before us. And it begins with our cry. Hosanna. Save us. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.